Hello, and welcome to another edition of Brussels Sprouts. I'm Andrea Kendall-Taylor. And I'm Jim Townsend. And we're so glad you can join us. Uh, This week, we're having the second of our two discussions about the results of the recent Munich Security Conference, Merrick's, and Aspen Strategy Group report called Mind the Gap, Priorities for Transatlantic China Policy. And just as a brief reminder to our listeners, in this report, experts from both sides of the Atlantic took stock of relations between the United States, Europe, and China, and proposed a transatlantic agenda that was focused on achieving quick wins across various issue areas. Last week, we focused in on the security and defense angle, and today we're going to zero in on the economic uh, and technology dimensions of the partnership. We're going to talk about how transatlantic partners can push for an economically level playing field with China and bolster their economic security, as well as how the United States and Europe can compete for tech leadership vis-a-vis China, uh, including through aligning principles and promoting research and development for emerging technologies. We've brought two of the contributors to the report and significant and um, phenomenal experts on all of these issues, so I'm really excited to welcome Maritia Shaka and Nico Hutari to the program. Welcome to both of you. Thank you. Thanks for having me. By brief way of background, just to do our introductions, uh, Maritia is the International Policy Director at Stanford University's Cyber Policy Center and International Policy Fellow at at Stanford's Institute for Human-Centered Artificial Intelligence. Between 2009 and 2019, she served as a member of European Parliament for the Dutch Liberal Democratic Party, where she focused on trade, foreign affairs, and technology policy. And Miko is the executive director of the Mercator Institute for China Studies. His research focuses on China's foreign policy, China-Europe relations, and global economic governance and competition. And he's published on China's rise as a financial power, trade and investment relations with Europe, and on geopolitical shifts related to China's emergence as a global security actor. So again, two um, ex, you know, very well-published, deep experts on all of these issues, and we're excited to have you share your insights with Brussels Sprouts listeners. I thought I would start this edition of the podcast where we started last week's, which is hearing from both of you, your takes and your assessment of where the transatlantic partners are on China. And as I noted in the previous edition, you know, the report that I referenced, the uh, Mind the Gap report, starts with the assertion that the transatlantic partners are converging on China. So, um, Miko, maybe we can start with you just to hear a little bit about how you would characterize where we are and to hear you kind of articulate if there's been any recent changes or any um, evolution in how you see Europe thinking about the China challenge. Thanks, Andrea. Thanks, Jim, for having us. Um, my pleasure to be on here, really. And I, I think, I mean, we can start with the observation that there's new momentum and a greater impetus for transatlantic China policy. And that's um, across different formats and groupings where Europe meets um, the United States. That's in the EU-US bilateral relationship. It is in the NATO context. It is in the G7 context where you all will have a strong European angle to that. And um, it is also quite consistent, I think, in the articulation of a greater need to coordinate better. There are certain uh, concrete measures that have been taken to facilitate more dialogue, better structures to get back to a coordinated agenda. I think the, the critical issue is now to move from 
clearing the ground to concrete steps, initiatives beyond just talking shops and new formats that might have been established. And obviously that all depends also on how much policy space there actually is to, to deliver on that. And we know that um, the global environment is not one that is pretty permissive at the moment to, to make sure that we get this agenda up and running and um, really lean forward on these issues. So um, China policy, I think, um, compared to just a few years, months ago, um, is in a much better place in the transatlantic realm, but um, we need to deliver now and move forward. Could I follow up with uh, on that just a little bit? You know, we, we say that uh, Europe is beginning to converge uh, on uh, China policy, coming closer to kind of where the U.S. Um, was, not, not exactly falling in line behind us, uh, but, uh, but certainly getting closer to a, a common view. But how true really is that? I mean, they're not in lockstep. They're not going with you know, the European uh, allies and partners. They're not in lockstep. They're not going at the same speed. Some will never fully get behind it. Others will be right behind you know, a U.S. approach. What's your what's for both of you all? What's your feel of of this uh, convergence? Is, is is it really a broad based lockstep Europe, your and air quotes Europe coming together, uh, or are we seeing just uh, cats on on the move and uh, at different speeds and different problems and some reluctant and you know what are we really seeing in terms of Europe European movement? Maybe just a quick answer before I hand over to Marita for the difficult details, or I don't know if she wants to take this up, but um, let's first start, you know, as a good European with uh, uh, the statement, I think, which is required here that maybe the United States is also falling in line with a less erratic European approach on China policy. Um, so it's not just that we're following in, and understanding finally um, how wrong our China policy has been. I right. don't think that's the case, and it's also not right. the right perspective. Um, on certain issues, including on level playing field issues, I think the Europeans have a much more sophisticated and straightforward policy on China than compared to the United States. Um, clearly, we don't share, and I'm happy to hear from, from, from all of you, really, um, the same threat perception, uh, and um, certainly not agree on all of our policies, and I think it's worth digging into details of that. First of all, the, the trust and the tone have dramatically improved since uh, Joe Biden entered into the White House. And I think that makes even difficult conversations easier. And that is certainly uh, strongly felt on the part of, of most European leaders. Having said that, when it comes to China, I think there's a lot of homework that the EU needs to do. Uh, on the one hand, there is a tendency to look way more to the West than to the East. Now, that uh, benefits the transatlantic relation, it's strong, uh, it's it's the preferred alliance, but it, it can also mean that there's a lack of broad appreciation for all the dynamics that are happening uh, in China, but in Asia more broadly among, I would say, the population. Uh, I do think that has changed um, on the one hand because during the Trump administration there were a lot of rallying cries around European sovereignty, um, you know, concerns about the strength of the transatlantic relation, which has led to lots of efforts also geopolitically to make the EU stronger. And I think that is necessary and it, it shouldn't be perceived just as you know, stepping away uh, from the transatlantic relation, uh, either from the US side or the European side, but really something that is very much 
needed. And here, the EU, I, I would say, has one fundamental challenge, which is the veto power of EU member states and the fragmentation between different members of the European Union, different countries, really does lead to stagnation when it comes to key policy priorities around China. For example, this whole 5G network technology discussion was held up for a long time because there is, on the one hand, a single market, one economic space with the same rules, and on the other hand, 27 different governments making their own assessments around national security because that is not a competence that lies with the European Union. And so you have this friction and we see more and more of that surfacing around tech-related topics between national security and economic and geopolitical topics. And that, I think, is something that the EU needs to overcome, and it will make it a better partner, uh, whether it's dealing with China or the United States, because you know clarity, predictability for either companies or other governments is always good. If I can follow up real quick, and Andrea, thank you for giving me latitude here up front on this to ask some follow-ups. But Miko, I, I'd like to hear both, both of your view on this. And as Miko, going back to something you had said, which I think is critical for American and particularly Washington within the Beltway uh, uh, policymakers and pundits to understand. And that is your point about, um, you know, what we're seeing here isn't necessarily Europe falling in line behind the United States and a US policy towards China. However, that is stated today, as much as it is um, uh, Europe uh, and European nations individually and the EU as an institution. I mean, we have to fragment that a little bit too, but that there is, it's, it's not like they're gonna follow the United States into the, into the breach once again. And we know how that works out, <laughs> but it's really, it's China having a better, I mean, it's Europe and, and allies and partners having a better understanding of what works for them. And so if it's, if it's, there's some convergence on some of what the US is saying, that's okay. But it's not, it is not Europe, European allies, European partners waiting for the US to come in and feed them with a silver spoon. The, the view of China as, as uh, brokered here in Washington and in the United States. So talk about that a little bit. Lay that out for an American audience to say, while we might be, you know, sounding, you know, very familiar to your ears, don't think it's because we're going to do what you guys are going to tell us. Those days are well over. I mean, I'm editorializing a little bit there. But both of you, just expand on that a little bit. Thanks, Jim. Uh, thanks for the platform. And I think you've said critical things there. Um, I think um, transatlantic China policy will work best if it, it is emerging from a growing realization that Europeans and Americans will not be able to um, handle the China challenge alone. And I think this is becoming pretty obvious on quite a few fronts. And that should be and will be, I think, a driving force of um, greater coherence, maybe, of policymaking across the Atlantic. Um, it's, you know, just looking back on, on some core issues, yes, there has been U.S. initiatives, um, for instance, on not accepting China as a market economy, but we, you know, Europeans have a pretty solid policy process. Marita knows more about it in the European Parliament to deal with such issues. And we've come to our own conclusion on that and found our own solution in dealing with that, which is different right. from the United States. Right. But it is, at the end of the day, aligned on certain core premises. And I think that's exactly the right way forward. Same is true for investment screening. I'm not so, so happy and convinced with um, the, the 
eventual European solution on 5G issues, but it is there's a European policy toolbox that is relatively sophisticated in looking at these issues. So um, let's recognize that Europeans have their own way. You know, I, at a certain point, I will want to write the book that, is, that says Europeans can think, um, uh, similar to a book that has been written in the Asian uh, landscape for, for Asians. Um, it's important to recognize that we have our own concerns and interests in all of this. And to a large extent, they will align. We don't have to force them to align because we face the same challenges. Aritya, do you want to add anything on that one? Well, I agree. And I, I think it is helpful for Americans to also appreciate that geography does matter. You know, there, there are um, infrastructure connections. Uh, it, it, it often seems to be overlooked, whether we're talking about refugee flows that can simply reach us by land or train connections or freight ships that are that are crossing borders and have for for centuries. And so the stakes are also informed by location and not just by politics or values or um, a willingness to to cooperate. But um, by and large, I agree there is a shared awareness, a growing awareness post covid with uh, more assertive China policy with, you know, signals of uh, government intervention reminding us that the state is very strong and has its own ambitions and is willing to instrumentalize uh, companies, the economy, technology. So um, I, I would imagine that the convergence will increase, but that indeed there will always be sort of different deliberations, different um, uh, priorities both in the United States and, and Europe, but nothing that cannot be overcome. And what I hope is that we will see more uh, cooperation along the lines of shared democratic values beyond the transatlantic relation. Because uh, in light of the challenges that we face, um, it is important to create this critical mass of shared understandings of, of what is at stake and how to best uh, protect it, whether it's open market economies or human rights, um, or uh, data governance, which I think needs a lot of work. Um, hopefully that will be the sort of um, point on the horizon along which the EU and the US can work together towards a larger coalition. Wonderful. Um, so I wanna, you know, you both of you have talked about the growing awareness and we're talking about the convergence and it, they might not be identical policies, but if they're in parallel and coordinated and complementary, that's kind of what we're striving for. And then Miko, you made the point, you know, growing awareness is great where we're, we've cleared the ground um, and the ground is now fertile for more concrete steps. We now kind of have to transition from developing these shared threat perceptions or at least, you know, getting closer about the nature of the challenges that we face as a transatlantic alliance and now shift gears and move more into the action oriented part of this process. Um, to that end, you know, earlier this year, President Biden traveled with the series of summits with the G7 and the EU and the NATO summits. And of course, China was very high on the priority list of all of those summits. Um, what was your reaction, you know, to the, to the EU summit in particular? And if you want to comment on NATO, that's great too. Um, and, and just to hear from you, how optimistic or not are you that there is going to be some concrete progress that is coming out of those summits? Um, given all of the proclamations and kind of agreements that were produced. Thanks, Andrea. And I, 
Look, I'm optimistic because I think this this has been unprecedented to some extent, and um, you know some of the key messages resonate uh, with Europeans, um, and one of them is pretty essential, and that's you know Europeans don't have to choose between the United States and China. Uh, that's a very important uh, message, not only for Asia but also for Europe. Um, and um, building on that, you know, starting to work in the Trade and Technology Council, which is on a pretty high level. Um, and all of this has to prove itself and deliver results, but um, I'm optimistic. Also the NATO agenda, um, there's some, I think, shared recognition that, you know, what's happening between China and Russia, what's happening in uh, Europe's neighborhood, what is happening in the cyberspace, all of these are issues that pull us together and don't um, pull us apart in terms of our joint agenda. Um, on G7, now the Build Back Better narrative is important, but again, you know, it needs to be put into practice now with concrete, you know, competitive connectivity projects and and, and um, um, aspects where we really work together. And so the ambition is clearly there. Uh, it's a question of putting that into practice and finding the policy space really for that, the time and energy given other developments. Maritia, maybe I can ask you kind of picking up on what Mika was saying. It seems like we now kind of have, well, there's many venues in which this transatlantic dialogue and coordination can take place, but the two that seem to stick out to me are the, um, Miko mentioned the Trade and Technology Council, but also the US-EU dialogue on China that was launched by the Trump administration back in October 2020, um, but that has been kind of picked up and pushed forward by the Biden administration. Can you tell us a little bit, I don't know if you're hearing things about what's happening in those two venues, um, you know, they're obviously taking on a huge number of issues, or they could, in theory, take on a huge number of issues. Do you have any sense of what some of the top priorities will be in either of those venues? Um, and kind of just, you know, whatever you're hearing about how progress is coming along or and how it might unfold. Well, what we're seeing is that there is a new shared focus on technology governance. And I think there the U.S. has certainly stepped in Europe's direction uh, with a joint statement coming out after the meeting between President Biden and Chancellor Merkel that was very much anchored around democratic values should inform uh, tech governance, which is, you know, it's really new and I think much welcomed, but marks the emergence of a new phase. Uh, I would say, where there is going to be more transatlantic focus on this whole question of tech governance and there this Trade and Technology Council should really pick up some tangible topics, whether it is supply chain security or artificial intelligence or uh, the question around how human rights are at stake, not only in China, I should add, also in our own societies, but really where uh, new thinking and new uh, leadership is needed to actually make sure that technology and particularly the companies that run the technologies do not disrupt uh, what is most precious to us. And so I was happy to see that that was such a high, um, uh, high priority on the, um, on the agenda and I hope it continues to be that way. Uh, but again, and I think you can hear from what I'm saying, I think it requires some, some thoughts to be developed at home as well because we are confronted with some of the worst harms when we look at China, right? Um, mass harvesting of data, repression through the latest surveillance uh, and, and uh, monitoring systems, uh, intersection of the economy, strategic efforts, uh, development um, in, in third countries that can be instrumentalized for a domestic agenda in China. 
But a lot of these phenomena and options that the new technologies bring uh, are also very much played out in our own society. So I think in order to have a shared democratic agenda, there needs to be a firm choice for those democratic principles to be leading. And um, I would say, particularly in the United States, that choice has not as clearly been made yet as it has been in the European Union. And so hopefully uh, this Trade and Technology Council will be a venue for those discussions, both sort of inward looking and outward looking. Yamiko, I want you to jump in too, and, and you can also think about addressing another part of this question, which is how the irritants in the transatlantic relationship itself in the technology sphere, whether it's kind of privacy shield, data privacy, the Digital Markets Act, there's obviously some irritants in our own relationship. To what extent do, do those need to be tackled first before we can do better on some of the issues that um, Maritia just talked about, or you know, how how do we how do to what extent do you think that irritants in our own relationship are going to be obstacles to us coordinating to do a lot of the things that Maritia just talked about? Right, I, I think we see it in the in the trade policy subsidy space where you know the U.S. and um, Europe managed to at least initially sort out some of the very long-standing bilateral trade issues um, on on Airbus and Boeing subsidies, which is a precondition to some extent um, to, to move forward on, on these issues internationally. The same is still, I think, in the room for WTO issues. Um, so if you want to talk about global trade challenges and governance, you would need to come to a joint understanding of what the future of the appellate body needs to be. But um, I don't think you can really sequence this. You need um, a general understanding of intention to work on these issues and then push forward on several fronts. Otherwise, it's just um, too slow in many ways. And it's remarkable how much, and I think Marita is absolutely right, tech governance and economic security issues are at the forefront, maybe much more so than fair competition and trade, classical trade governance issues. And I'm not sure whether Europeans are all in for that balance, um, but uh, it's it's a shift um, that we need to recognize. If you look at the 10 areas and working groups that the Trade and Technology Council needs to look at, there's a lot of China in there, but it's also front and center tech. Um, um, so standards, um, climate and clean tech, secure supply chains, ICT security, data governance, um, security and human rights of technology. So really, um, this is a different agenda in many ways. Um, and it's a future and forward looking agenda. And I think it's absolutely appropriate. Um, if I could take us more to the nuts and bolts of, um, of tech in Europe, particularly, you know, when we, when 5G first hit the news a couple of years ago, uh, the US was coming in and bullying a, a lot of, of European governments, I think about uh, ripping, ripping Chinese Huawei equipment out of uh, already existing systems, being uh, concerned about what the Chinese were up to when it came to putting in hardware and software. Uh, and, um, and there was this cry that, well, look, there's, there's not really, certainly within Europe, Ericsson and Nokia were the only European-based uh, competitors. I'm sure there were some others I'm not mentioning, but those were the two 
that were really highlighted as the only ones that could compete. And they were a few years behind where the Chinese were. And so there was this gap and nations needed to fill the gap. They needed the Huawei. And so my question for you all is, you know, that was the situation a couple of years ago, uh, but then there was some convergence among a lot of the European nations that we do have to worry, be worried a bit about Huawei here and the, and the Chinese dominance in Europe. Um, and so have you all picked up that in fact, whether it's Nokia, Ericsson or Philips or whoever it might be, uh, that there has been some leaps in R&D and capability among European sources for 5G and, and all that comes with 5G. And that in fact, um, this was a prompt uh, uh, to improve the, the tech capability in lots of places in Europe that might not have been where they are today if, if the uh, Huawei had in fact taken over. Um, did you all see that kind of growth in the European tech side or is it still racing to try to catch up? Um, I think it's a bit more nuanced than that. So yes, uh, there, there were strong pushes from the United States for the EU to sort of join this decoupling effort, which I do think it, it deserves some, some thought exercises in terms of what is at the end of the road of the decoupling and who at the end of the day benefits, right? Or who loses out and, and why? Because the dependence is, is really uh, significant also for US producers on um, half, half products and, and um, supply chains, basically, uh, a lot of which is in China. So the leverage is not only one, one way. Um, there is 5G technology in Europe. Uh, indeed, it should have been more strategically leveraged. There are other sectors where uh, EU companies are, are not at all doing too badly. Think about semiconductors, uh, ASML is a, a European company, but also very promising developments when it comes to quantum computing. Um, but it's true that the, that the EU needs to focus on growth and uh, scaling its very successful companies um, more effectively. A lot of them end up going to the United States and uh, scaling there uh, because the ecosystem is more accessible and, and venture capital more available. Um, I don't know if it will stay that way. Uh, I know there's a lot of hard work being done in Europe um, for, for a lot of people, quality of life also matters, which is very much valued um, in the European Union. Uh, having said that, I, I don't think this particular question has really sparked new uh, innovations as such. So the 5G discussion is a significant one, many lessons learned, but I don't think it has led to significant market developments as such. That's interesting, thank you. On the innovation question, you know, whether it's through NATO or, you know, through the uh, US-EU dialogue, there's been a number of efforts to set up kind of innovation accelerators. Um, you have even outside the EU now, the UK talking about, you know, wanting to do innovation and be a technology leader. Um, how, how concerned are you that there is kind of a fragmentation of efforts that has the potential to undermine kind of greater collaboration that can spur the innovation that we need to compete with China. I mean, do you see, you know, whether it's, at, you know, like I was saying, there's the, the accelerators in the NATO context and these joint programs in the EU and the UK is kind of doing its own thing. And obviously the United States wants to be its own leader. There's a lot going on in this space. And so how, how do you kind of make sense of the innovation piece of this? And again, that question of, is there a risk that there's, that it's too fragmented to have the type of impact that we need to have in order to ensure we're competing technologically with China. I think competition is generally good for innovation. 
So I wouldn't I wouldn't say that you know too much uh, effort in competition and, and initiatives are bad for innovation. The question with regard to China is to what extent should innovation, innovation policies, research, economic policies, technology policies be securitized, be really looked at through a lens of national security concerns. I think that is where the question of national champions, you know, helping out certain sectors by investing or giving them more leeway regulatorily, uh, for example, when it comes to competition, ironically, so to allow them to become very big where there would otherwise be concerns for, for monopoly power would be justified in the interest of national security. And this is a tension. I don't think there is one uh, silver bullet or one uh, great, great outcome here. I, I think it's a, it's a um, evolving field where, sure, you hear more calls for national champions in Europe, sometimes from the very governments that were calling for national champions 10 years ago with a different argument. Uh, and there are those who worry that uh, too much sort of state support goes against the openness and the uh, liberal characteristics of our economies. And, and uh, here again, for the EU to act as one is particularly difficult given some of the divisions of, of labor and authority between the EU and member states. But I do see a lot of debate around what is called European sovereignty, uh, questions about which sectors really do need to be boosted and prioritized also with public resources and where you know healthy competition, fair competition is, is good to go and will actually spark good innovations. I think it's an absolute critical question. And um, obviously there is this um, strong competitive dynamic uh, when you see a chip sack in the United States and the ambition by Thierry Breton, the Commission for Industry, um, to, to look at um, you know, autonomous capacities in Europe to produce chips, et cetera. Uh, I'm with Mariti on this. Um, I think that's, that's right for the moment, but we also have to ensure that Indeed, you know, our respective competition policy authorities manage that um, uh, aspect because it will be about a lot of money and who gets the money. Um, so you need to maintain a certain level of openness also for participation from key allied partners, um, OECD partners, G7 partners, NATO partners. So if you have an European important project of common European interest, which is currently the modality that Europe uses to fund collaborative innovation uh, projects in industrial policy. Um, I, I want to make sure that this is, um, you know, an open exercise where other like-minded partners can participate. I would hope that the same is possible on the on the U.S. side. That's a that's a great uh, point, uh, Miko and um, Maritza. I I, uh, I, I want to, you know, I've worked for many years in the transatlantic defense trade world. And, uh, you know, it is just non, you know, never ending this idea of a level playing field. Uh, US, for the US, it's all by America. The trade is one way. Uh, and then we have PESCO and all these things happen. And then you have US industry going, oh my God, they're locking us out as Fortress Europe. This is so unfair, they subsidize. And, you know, we've had this going on and on and on and on in the arms uh, trade world and it's never gonna end. And, and uh, we're not gonna find any solution frankly, it's just going to have to muddle along. Do you think we'll be able to avoid that in this tech cooperation? I'm just, you know, I, from, I, and you all have touched on it just a little bit over the past few minutes, but I, I just hope that we can somehow come up with a way in which 
you know, we, we don't have fingers pointing and people saying, well, you know, we're locked out of the AI, uh, uh, you know, tech world in Europe. They're going in one direction and they won't let us participate or vice versa. The U.S. is coming in. They're dominating. They're undercutting. They're underselling us. Uh, there's no way that uh, European industry is going to be able to flourish if the U.S. is you know, who's worse, China or the U.S. when it comes to dominating in Europe, et cetera, et cetera. Do you think we can avoid that this time? Or is that just the nature of the beast? Well, you sound like you have more experience than I do. So uh, uh, there can always be hope. <laughs> but uh, I think a big question is, is not only uh, whether these sort of policy and political discussion and, you know, who benefits most can be resolved, but also what the proper relationship between private sector companies and public interest protections are. Here we see that in the United States, there is a huge reliance on companies. And we also see that, you know, picking up uh, a lot with regard to the uh, threats and harms identified as coming from China. You know, we hear uh, leaders uh, with, with corporate experience or even active corporate roles saying, give us all the space to roll out our currencies or to roll out our artificial intelligence because otherwise China will dominate the market. Now, in Europe, there is broadly speaking, I would say more interest in protecting uh, public values and not so much allowing the defense of democracy and the defense of strategic interests only to market actors. And this is where I see new uh, challenges also for the um, uh, Biden administration, to what extent it considers its interests and values aligned with those of Silicon Valley giants, or to what extent there will be a need to keep them more in check, to, to ask more explicit commitments to uh, national security and, and democratic um, uh, stakes from the US side. And for example, there are, there are um, efforts that I, I could see convergence around when it comes to, um, for example, making data available for, for more public research. For example, this idea of a national research cloud could become a transatlantic research cloud where data can be unlocked uh, with, with an interest in allowing academics to do research, not just the Googles and the, uh, and the uh, big, big tech companies of this world. So there are other dividing lines that I think will pop up in this discussion where I would say uh, we need to pierce through the lobby arguments of American big tech companies when they are presenting themselves as the best defense of democracy vis-a-vis -vis China. Okay, we're getting kind of towards the end of our time, but I have two issues that I still want to ask about. One is Lithuania, and the other is Afghanistan. And we're not going to jump into Afghanistan for Afghanistan, but maybe I want to hear your thoughts on you know, how this is going to affect the strength of the transatlantic relationship, whether this is going to accelerate calls by some in Europe that Europe needs to kind of go its own way and, and, and move ahead and, you know, we reduce its reliance on the United States. So I want to come back to that. But first on Lithuania, um, I wonder if you can kind of give us a little bit of your sense of what's happening there. You know, one of the reasons we've talked about how important transatlantic cohesion is, is because it can also, you know, take away or mitigate some of China's ability to retaliate. You can't, you know, if we're cohesive, it makes it more difficult for Beijing to either pick on weak links or to retaliate against one without, you know, in, in eliciting a response from the transatlantic alliance more broadly. 
we have a case currently where with Lithuania, not only have they, I think, withdrawn from the 17 plus one, but they've also decided that they're going to develop ties with Taiwan. And now we're seeing some very aggressive policies coming from Beijing. So um, I don't know, Miko, if you've been following this um, in any depth, but just your sense of what's happening there and how Europeans are responding to it. Is the signal then that other small European states get is that we're not going to be willing to take the risk of standing up on some of these issues where we think it's important because they don't want to elicit the, the retaliation and the backlash from Beijing? Or is there a different message that's coming out of it? Just, I guess, your sense on, on what, what is the European, different European responses to what's going on with Lithuania? Great question. Uh, I think, I mean, first of all, it's probably the first time that China has recalled an ambassador from a European Union member state. Um, so it is a pretty significant uh, development. It's an expression of um, disappointment, I think, uh, of many countries, and Lithuania is certainly not alone uh, there with the 17 plus one initiative, but also other uh, you know, promises, economic promises. And the clear signal, obviously, also that um, there will be overriding security interests and alliance interests and that um, for many member states and that uh, will play an important role moving forward and that member states are willing to pay a price uh, for that. Now, um, what is to some extent worrying is, I, is that the European Union, at least formally, publicly, is not as forthcoming with support for such um, stances by member states that take a more critical um, a position on certain key issues, including the Taiwan issue. So I think the baiting is quite um, targeted and probably effective in, in signaling now offensively that this has costs and implications and um, uh, threatens other actors who might take similar stances. So I'm, I'm disappointed by the European public uh, response to that at this moment, but I think in the long term, probably medium term, it is another indication for European member states that you better don't stand alone uh, in your China relationship, but you make sure you have relevant support. And that will be a direction of the German China policy making moving forward after the elections. And it's certainly also the general trend in Europe. So um, maybe a new indication for uh, let's better hang together and um, make sure that we, we have an aligned European China policy. Maritia, anything you want to add there? Well, just a, a reminder how of how much of a misguided uh, effort this whole 17 plus one ever was, right? So you have this, this fragmentation between member states where it seems easier to, to come together around relations with Beijing than to simply uh, stay together, uh, rallied around Brussels. And then when uh, one, albeit small country, changes its mind, it becomes a test case. And I think the, the Chinese understand this very, very well. And this notion of solidarity and alignment, particularly for smaller countries, we've seen a lot of confrontations with, with uh, others like Sweden in the past. Um, it is important to be united. Scale is important around shared values. And I think that this is, this is really why such a democratic coalition at you know, larger scale between the EU, the United States and other important partners uh, is, is so um, essential to start developing. And um, in general, I think it's a good thing that the United States stands behind Lithuania to make these decisions uh, autonomously and uh, everybody should see this as a, as a no-brainer, but it's also the consequence of, of, I would say, mistakes in the past. 
Wonderful. Okay. So that leaves our last topic. And I think Jim is, is going to be far better at articulating a good question out of this. So I'll get us started, Jim, but you can kind of layer on and this can be our final kind of point of discussion. But I mean, it's obviously such early days and we are in the throes of the urgent and the tactical response and, and getting people out of Afghanistan and all of the evacuations. And I, you know, it, it still doesn't feel like necessarily the right time to step back and do a, you know, a, a, a deeper examination necessarily of all of the implications that will stem from this withdrawal from Afghanistan. But just off the cuff, and because it's happening and it's so top of mind for all of us, given you know the horrible, horrible scenes that are coming out of Kabul, it raises the question you know about where we are in the transatlantic relationship. For the United States, China has been such a priority, and it has been important to the Biden administration that we foster a closer and uh, more cohesive relationship with Europe, in part because there's recognition of just how important Europe is in competing with China. And then we have something like this that I imagine is gonna be very damaging to the transatlantic partnership. So I, I mean, I, I again, I know we all haven't really fully processed what's happening and what the implications will be, but if you have any kind of off the cuff sense or you know, feelings about how something like this might impact the transatlantic partnership's ability to come together to address other challenges like China. How, you know, how damaging do you think this is going to be? And, you know, to my point earlier, you know, one of the concerns in the United States is that Europe will just maybe go it alone, right? There's been calls for greater strategic autonomy in some areas in, in ways that could make it harder to forge that more common position. Um, it's, it's a lot, a lot, you know, a, a very uh, long way of asking the question, do you think that this might actually uh, hurt transatlantic cohesion to take on these other challenges and other issue areas like China. Yes, there is no doubt. I mean, the the uh, disappointment in on the one hand, I think a lot of Europeans feel like they've been pulled into conflicts by solo actions of the United States, and that they're now being you know confronted with the uh, consequences of solo actions of the United States by pulling out in the way. Uh, that, that the different administrations uh, chose to do, which was uh, underprepared with devastating consequences for the Afghan people. I'm thinking particularly about women, but also with huge spillover effects in uh, trust between transatlantic partners. Uh, not to forget that, you know, the, the refugee uh, problems that we've just sort of, um, well, managed is, is obviously an overstatement, but overcome the worst crises around in Europe are now back in, in, uh, in the discussion, uh, benefiting uh, the um, enemies of multilateralism, the enemies of, of humanitarianism. So uh, yes, I think it will definitely be used uh, as an argument not to uh, engage in international missions anymore, but also by those who are very much part of the mainstream, I think the, the pain and the disappointment is real. Uh, I've I've seen interviews with veterans over the weekend who feel like uh, they lost their uh, their uh, companions in vain, uh, families who lost their loved ones who feel like uh, it may have not been, uh, you know, followed through in the way that that the mission deserved. There is no doubt that this will be damaging, and and I I think that first and foremost, this is an important discussion that Americans should have among themselves. Uh, many lessons learned and um, uh, painful ones, unfortunately. 
If there is a positive twist to all of this, which is very hard, uh, I think, to argue at this point, is that um, um, more humility uh, will probably lend itself to greater cooperation moving forward. Um, but I agree with um, Marietje. Um, it is quite in contrast, by the way, to the relative success of um, China policy diplomacy by the United States, you know, keeping everyone abreast of what's happening and um, um, uh, keeping everyone in the loop, aligning the Quad, working with the Europeans. I mean, this was a success in diplomacy. I think obviously Afghanistan is absolutely uh, in a striking contrast to that. So we, it's quite clear there's a lesson to be learned. The US can both fail dramatically um, and we can then jointly work with that, but also that there is potential in leadership, um, which should be joint leadership as much as possible. So humility will be a good way forward, hopefully also for China policy. Let's, let's hope that's a lesson that we do learn. We failed in the past uh, multiple times, and that lesson just hasn't really taken uh, in Washington among decision makers and having been part of the government uh, since the waning decade of the Cold War, I've seen us relearn this lesson over and over again, and it just makes me sick. Uh, and, um, and so I, I hope your silver lining about humility uh, and the death of hubris um, can be learned uh, with that new generation coming in. I hope that's the case. And Maritza, I, I agree with what you're saying completely. Uh, and this isn't over yet. It's going to get, probably get worse before it gets better uh, in terms of what we're seeing on the ground in Kabul. So um, let's just let's see how this, this uh, plays out in the years to come. And it'll be, uh, the reverberations will last years. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I just be you know putting a China frame on this because that's the subject of this podcast. But um, CNAS's CEO Richard Fontaine had co-authored a report in the Atlantic a couple of days ago on how the Afghan withdrawal cost the U.S. with China, and he made I guess for for those of you who haven't read it, I would recommend checking out out. It had a lot of really interesting points, and but one of the things I definitely would add to that list is then how this has damaged relationships with the allies that we need uh, to take on China. And you know, I, in the early days of the Biden administration, had been so optimistic that things were finally moving in the right direction, repairing the transatlantic relationship, and I do fear that this is really gonna put that on ice. Um, and there's gonna be a lot of hard work that the United States is gonna have to do to try to, I don't know, I don't know how, you know, I don't know what the solution is, but this is a, is a significant setback, I think, to the administration's early efforts to, to repair relations with the transatlantic partners. So I'm sure this is something that we will be taking stock of and, and, and discussing for, you know, months to come. Um, and unfortunately, it's a very down note to end the podcast on. We do try to end on more optimistic notes. So maybe we should take Miko's, I guess, shred of optimism and, and, and Jim's good points about humility moving forward. But we do have our work cut out for us. Um, you know, the United States and Europe do have a lot of shared challenges, and it will be important that we can keep this relationship intact to take those on. So with that, um, I'm gonna thank you both Miko and Maritia for this really fantastic discussion. And again, for people who haven't seen the report, Minding or Mind the Gap, Priorities for Transatlantic China Policy, I do recommend it. Both Miko and Maritia had fantastic contributions to that effort. Um, it helps with what Miko was saying, making the transition from the shared assessment to getting the ground right to actual 
concrete steps that the transatlantic partners can take. And so there's a lot of really fantastic ideas in that report for where the transatlantic partners can go. So thanks for both, you know, to your contributions to that report and for joining us for this discussion. And I hope we can do it again um, in a couple more months just to kind of catch up on where we are and, and take stock of whether or not some of these concrete steps have been put into action um, by the transatlantic partners. So thank you both.